What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Tugger. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of these. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's not, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. Right? And I, <laughs> that's a good one, man. No, I'll tell you why. Look. All right, welcome to Death Row Diaries. I'm Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nogueira. Yeah, and today we're going to be talking about a pretty interesting guy. At least he really portrays himself as interesting. That's that's for certain. Named Stephen Wayne Anderson. Um, but before we get into that, we have a few listener questions for you. Being on death row is that's where I'm talking to you. If we have any new listeners, and uh, so Heather from North St. Louis asks. What is the best item on the cafeteria menu in San Quentin State Prison? None of it, but <laughs> if you need me to pick something, you know, that's the last question I thought someone was going to ask me about San Quentin Prison was the menu. I mean, most people want to know how many people I've seen murdered on the yard, how many guys have been stabbed in the last two weeks, but what is the favorite menu on the... Oh, God, that's a good one. Um, for me, at least... Uh, Hamburgers? Yeah, it's hard to... I mean, even a bad hamburger yeah. is not that bad. Yeah, you know, you can always mustard up, but probably hamburgers. They used to give us burritos years ago, and those were, I guess, they were better than cafeteria food. So those are probably my two favorites, hamburgers and, and burritos. But we haven't had burritos in at least, I don't know, 16 years. So the budget, you know, got out the window. But let's just say the hamburgers are probably the best one. And the last time I had one was on Saturday nights. Well, if you get out of there, I'll uh, I'll buy you a burrito. How about that? Man, that sounds like a plan. Thank you. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, so last question. We have Jake from Fort Worth. And he worded this question kind of as a... Uh, he, he filled in some background information. So he says... I'm a white guy, clean cut, in my 30s. If I go to prison, can I avoid getting beat up by playing the rich guy that will take care of people once I get out? And then he notes, I am not rich at all. Yeah, I would advise that because in prison, predators see money and they just see one thing. Give me, give me, give me. And when they find out you don't have any money, then it gets 10 times worse. So... Yeah, I would not advise that. In prison, people can usually smell a lie or at least someone covering up for it. Like, in prison, you can't pretend to be a tough guy. It's either you are or you're not. Uh, so if his, um, if he's a clean-cut white guy, uh, you know what they say about committing crimes in the time? If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that brings us to Stephen Wayne Anderson. Um, and we'll discuss his crimes when we return.
This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. All right. All right, and we're back. So Stephen Wayne Anderson, when we were just very briefly talking before we started, you almost, I almost feel like you cracked a smile when you, when when I brought up this guy because he's you know he's interesting in in that he's not he's not your typical prisoner and you have a certain opinion on like what his personality is made out of and I I have a feeling that we might agree but I want to hear it from you. Okay, so yeah, Stephen Wayne Anderson, his nickname was Sonny. That's what they called him at San Quentin. He also had an AKA, which is his other name, and that's Felix Smith. Um, he's originally from St. Louis, and there is question as to where he really uh, was born at. There's a number of different, um, even the Supreme Court of California second-guessed where he was born. But for general purposes, St. Louis. He was born July 8th, 1953. And, you know, it's like a lot of the guys that we've profiled here, you know, alcoholic father, emotionally abusive mother, not a very good start. But this guy, what the interesting thing, at least for me, is that he's kind of like an onion. He has layers to him. And... You know, depending on the situation he's in, he kind of changes these layers or he changes his mask. So um, my take on this guy is that he's a survivor. And he understands people's opinions mean a lot no matter where he's at. And in prison, as I mentioned earlier, in prison you can't fake being tough. So he was put in a situation in prison. He responded that way. But we'll get to that in a minute. Let's let's um, let's go into what made this guy who he is. And as I mentioned, he had an alcoholic father, had an abusive mother, and he was pretty much tortured as a kid. He was beat up by his mother. They were left to fend for themselves. Uh, there was never food on the table. This was not your uh, leave it to Beaver home where mom and dad sat down, the kids were at the table, and they discussed what happened. There was prayers, none of that. These kids were on the bill from the very beginning. Um, they were stealing at early, early age just to get by. And by the age of 14, his mother kicks him out of the house. And he's left to fend for himself. He is committing petty thefts to eat. Um, he's breaking into homes to sleep. He really has nowhere to go. He has no education. But the one thing he has going for him at this early age are his wits. So there's been a lot made of this guy's intelligence. And I don't mean that he was deficient in this department. From all accounts, he had about 136 IQ. So... To really break that down and understand that, you got to understand what an IQ is. A lot of people think an IQ means, oh, this guy is brilliant. He's a freaking genius. All an IQ means is you have the capacity. So if, it, if it's a, a glass of water and everybody normally has a 16-ounce glass, this guy had a 25-ounce glass, meaning that he could take in more information, probably process more. He had the capacity to solve problems at a higher level. doesn't mean that he was bright. 
doesn't mean anything. All it means is had the capacity. It's like having a car with a big motor, okay? So um, that's what got this guy going. He was very, uh, he thought really well on his feet. And it got him in trouble really early on because he learned he could steal. He learned he could break in a house and sleep there. He made himself at home. And that kind of comes to haunt him later on in his life. Yeah, uh, in analyzing him, and this is obviously just from an outside perspective, but, you know, you got to wonder, so I don't even get how you have a birth certificate and it's not clear where you're from. It, it also says, like, he, you know, the family moved to New Mexico and he was kicked out of the house and he kind of ran out into the hills. And I'm wondering if this is perhaps apocryphal like if he is indulging this image a little bit or not i don't know well from what i understand and from what i know of him that story stayed pretty consistent and even the court when they ruled on his case they kind of go into his childhood what he had to do and they do acknowledge that he was kicked out of the house that age and he went into the hills and of course he came down and stole and, and kind of survived that way so it was you know, he wasn't out there living with wolves or anything, but, I mean, it's a 14-year-old kid, and he's got it rough. Um, and that leads right into committing crimes, burglary specifically. And it isn't long before he ends up in prison in for crimes committed in 1971 and 1973. He is sent to the Utah State Prison for burglary. And... This is when things get really bad for him. And when you go to prison, whether it be in California or the state, you're tested right away. And for, you know, Sonny, he gets into an argument with another convict. Now, this particular convict had a reputation um, for being a snitch. His name was Robert Blundell or Blundell. And it's 1977, and they're in the kitchen, or in the, the state prison kitchen, uh, like the cafeteria, and he pulls out a knife, meaning uh, Sonny, and he stabs this guy to death with, the, with that knife. Along the way, he also assaults prison guards, other inmates, and he kind of gets his reputation while he's in prison. And, um, yeah, so he's obviously wearing the mask of a convict, a convict who should be respected because he has the potential to kill, and he has shown that potential by doing exactly that, murdering another convict. Yeah, I imagine the word gets around on that, and that certainly probably <clears throat> serves to prove oneself that they're not to be messed with. Um, yeah, I was curious how he kind of fared in prison. If we want to get a picture of the guy, he's, um, he was, you know, a decent looking guy. And then he became fairly morbidly obese, it seems like, but he's, um, kind of a dorky looking white guy in one of his photos. I think it's the one that if you Google, it's one of the only ones that comes up. He's, he's making like an outtake, like goofy, you know, photo booth face, you know, he's, he's making a silly face in the photo is what it looks like to me. Um, so it was hard to kind of 
get a handle on? Is he this goofy bookish guy, you know, nerd, but also he's uh, capable of stabbing someone to death as well and shooting someone in the face as well. Come to find out. Well, I've met a lot of guys in prison that come off as bookish and nerdy, but they're stone cold killer. I never judge a book by its cover in prison because a guy takes a photo op. He looks kind of silly doing it. There could be all kinds of different reasons why he did that. Um, I got to know Sonny, and and I we'll get to that once we talk about his crime and arriving in prison at San Quentin specifically. But that he has this on his jacket, he's murdered another inmate or a convict. Um, it serves notice right away to anybody that decides to mess with him or or try and take something from him, and that is that. When push comes to shove, this guy is going to get serious on you real quick. And, you know, a lot of guys think, well, we'll just fight. In prison, there's really no fighting. You can fight, but normally one of the guys is carrying a, a, a knife. He's trying to kill you with it. And just like you don't run in prison. Because if you run, you get shot. There's a lot of things you don't do in prison. But with this guy, everybody knew what he had done in Utah. So... They figured, no matter what he looks like, if he can't handle you physically, he's going to bring his equalizer, which is a bone crusher, which is what they call a knife in prison. A prison-made knife is called a bone crusher. And he will use it. Right. Right. That's, uh, I guess that's good advice, is don't judge a book by its cover. Uh, so we get to his... I guess what landed him in on death row, is that a good place to go from here? Well, sort of, because after he stabs this guy in prison, two years later, 1979, on November the 24th, he escapes from the Utah prison where he's at. And according to legend, according to uh, his own accounts, he goes into Las Vegas and begins to work as a contract killer for Utah, for a Las Vegas drug kingpin. This is a story that he would tell people. Yeah, but, uh, I'm a little suspicious of this story because I know one of his contract killings, according to him, was over like a $400 drug deal. Is he just trying to sound cool or was he actually a hitman? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question and one I've thought about a lot. Like, as I said, I knew this guy. And so if you are arrested for something, which we're going to talk about in a few moments, I mean, it's a pretty good uh, thing to put out there. You're coming to prison, you're on death row or possibly going to death row, and you want to keep that tough guy persona going around, of course, you're not going to say I'm a burglar or I'm a hobo who jumps from train to train. What's the best one to put out there? Hey, I'm a contract killer for the mob, right? And that's what it was. It was all smoke and mirrors. So you don't think he actually was? Was it a way to justify his his crimes as though instead of being a murderer, he was doing it as a hitman, or was he just was this just a total? sham 
it was a complete sham. I asked him specifically about that at one point because some guys brought it up and I was part of that conversation and the guys that were asking him were pretty serious guys. One of them happened to be, and I won't mention his name, one of them happened to be a contract killer. He never told anybody he was a contract killer because contract killers don't go around telling people they're contract killers. Okay, they just don't. Uh, so, and his response was, oh man, you know, uh, you know, I was just you know, doing my thing. He basically just shook and jived his way around the question. It was untrue. It was just, you could tell about when he needed the person put the question to him and asked him specifics about people in Las Vegas that this particular guy who also is, but is a contract killer because he's here for contract killings, asked him the question about specific people in Las Vegas and Sonny did not know what to say. So right then we knew it was all made up. Yeah. Maybe he wanted to be a contract killer. Hey, I want to be a point guard for Los Angeles Lakers too. <laughs> well, there is a <laughs> there's a big chasm. I feel there's a a lot of different kinds of hitmen. You'll see on these murder shows, you know, someone hires a hitman to kill someone for five thousand dollars, and it turns out the guy's like a drunken, bumbling idiot. And it's like, well, you get what you pay for, you know. Uh, and frankly, anyone that's in the business of killing people for money is probably not real reliable because they probably have some issues, you know? Well, it depends on what he is. I mean, a contract killer could be some bomb that you just say, when you do this, he could be anybody, but a real contract killer. And there are those type here on death row. They're extremely serious. They're extremely good at what they do. They don't get caught after two or one it's 15 20 later and you don't tell the cops hey i killed six people i'm a contract killer like sonny did so yeah no right all right i'm back all right so it's almost like uh our listener who asked should you pretend to be a rich guy and the answer was no but maybe pretending to be a hitman isn't a bad idea. See, I think this guy suffers from something that a lot of smart people I know suffer from, which is they're smart, but they're not as smart as they think they are. And a narcissist also thinks everyone else is stupid. Um, and so he can't really pull off this lie, right? Well, yeah, but this lie being a hitman, you know, it's, you don't tell people those things and when you do, and you are in an environment like death row, there are a lot of guys here who actually are contract killers. And they usually talk, stay together. Remember I mentioned you all serial killers that play cards together? Usually people the same, you know, birds of a feather flock together, right? Usually guys in particular fields of expertise, and I do say it in that manner because some of the contract killers that I know are extremely professional and they compare notes and I'll, I'll say this i'll just say his name is steve because i don't have any other name to give this guy and i'm not going to give him his real name or give you his real name but this guy is a contract killer and steve got ammo magazine guns and ammo. this guy if you told him 
any gun from a 22 to a 45 caliber, you ask them what's the grain of the of the projectile, anything regarding firearms, handguns, how to make a silencer, he can tell you in a second how to do all these things. He studied his craft. This guy, Sonny, he didn't know what he was talking about. He probably read a book about it, a magazine, something, you know, a novel, and thought, hey, this is, man, this is great. Because in prison, you can be whoever you want to be. But those who are really who they say they are, they act like it. Remember what I was telling you about that the people's stories normally, when they're the truth, they stay the same, they don't alter over the years. With guys that are real, they don't change, they stay the same. So, uh, so this guy, Sonny, obviously, he's out, he's, out, he's, he's on the run, and um, the crime that put him on death row was committed on May 26, 1980. He was 26 years of age, and this is another reason why the story of Hitman doesn't fly. He breaks into the home of an 81-year-old retired piano teacher. Uh, her name is Elizabeth um, Lehman, and she lives in Bloomington, California, and Sonny breaks in her home. He cuts the telephone wire before he goes in there, so it doesn't really make sense why he did that when he said that he entered the home because he knew that she wasn't there or it looked like no one was there. So maybe he was being extra precautious, but once inside the house, he begins to check all the rooms. He enters a room where she is asleep. She wakes up and screams, and he shoots her in the face with a 45 caliber handgun, killing her. Um, he said that she startled him. If he's a hitman, you normally understand human nature. You study people. You just don't break into houses. So once he does this, he covers her up in a blanket. He finds the expelled shell that he used, the casing. And he goes on to burglarize the house, getting a grand total of about 100 bucks. That doesn't sound like a hitman to me. Then he falls back to what he, know, what he knows, which is what we know he knows. He breaks into homes as a kid to eat and to sleep. And that's exactly what he does in his house. He opens all the windows, the curtains. He turns on the lights. He goes into the kitchen. And he fixes himself dinner while this woman, the victim, is dead in the other room. And, of course, one of the neighbors hears the commotion, sees a strange man walking around the house. They call the police. And three, or three hours later, the police barge into the house and they find him eating dinner watching television yeah it's funny to me first of all he was eating noodles and eggs which sounds gross um but he so he takes the care to pick up his shotgun shell and he thinks oh, i'm getting away with this meanwhile he does something really stupid which is stay in the house for three hours arrogantly almost in a cocky way you know watching tv cooking the woman's food he probably would have got away with it if he wasn't so into you know whatever whatever this is i'm gonna eat dinner because i'm i'm such a cool cool guy or whatever 
whatever it is, you know, I, I feel like he's got an image of what he's doing, if that makes sense. Yeah, in the, in the show, is a forty-five caliber um, oh. uh, shelling from a handgun, not a shotgun. Okay. But that even comes back to haunt him later, which I'll explain. But this guy is doing not, none of the things that, say, contract killer expert at killing people. This describes a guy who's a, a beginner. He really doesn't know what he's doing. Um, he doesn't think ahead of time. And so the police get him and they immediately arrest him. And that's where he admits, hey, I'm a contract killer. I got six killing. And he tells the police about this. Now, why would a contract killer tell the police, hey, I'm a contract killer? I would guess maybe, I, I think you were asking rhetorically, but if he has some kind of scheme, you know, maybe he could claim to have information. He knows he's going to be found guilty, maybe to reduce his sentence, or am I just thinking about it more than he was? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I don't think that's true. I just, I don't know why he would say that. He just, um, it makes no sense, and it's completely complete untrue. So it doesn't take long. I mean, he, he goes to trial, obviously. They, they try him for it. During the trial, he tells the jury, she didn't deserve, she didn't deserve that. I was very wrong. Um, but the jury, hey, they find him guilty and on July 24th, 1981, boom, they give him the death penalty. Um, and of course, 10 days later, he's here on the row. Um, somewhat before me, a few years before I got here, I didn't get here to death row until 1988 and I was already in the county jail by 1983, um, he was arrested about a year and a half before I was. Um, but this is where things kind of turn because when he arrives on death row, back then death row wasn't as big as it is now. We have you've had more than a few thousand people that have been either released, reduced to sentence, they've gone somewhere else, they've died, they've been murdered. There's about 750 guys here now, but back then. In 1981, we received the death penalty. There's probably maybe 45 to 50 guys here. So he sent up to North Seg, which was the original death row, even in the 60s and 50s. And there is where he begins his kind of, he changes skin again. Now he's no longer the, the contract killer. He's no longer the traveling hobo. Now he's become sort of a writer. You know, he, he writes poetry. He writes a couple of novels. And a lot of people got very, you know, interested in him at that point. And then the whole thing about his IQ started coming out that, you know, this guy's very intelligent. Uh, he's wooing people with his words. And he won a couple of awards for his poetry. But, you know, not to say this wasn't significant or wasn't substantial what he was doing, but the awards are from Pan America, and that's a, an award given to prisoners. That's Pan. won those awards. Pen stands for Poets, yeah. Essayists, and Novelists. That's the Pen Award. Well, you just told me something I did not know. Yeah. But... Again, this is not an award that was given to 
the poet laureate of Los Angeles or was he making it in the, in the mainstream? This is kind of a thing down for prisoners, which is still significant. You have to say he did something creative with his time. And if, if, if you don't mind, I'd like to read you something that he wrote before. I, mean, I don't know if he wrote this or not, but it was part of his, his um, the, uh, the Supreme Court documents they had this on. And this is what it says. He wrote, I miss listening to the sounds of night, crickets chirping and birds calling each other. I miss watching life unfold and hearing echoes continuing through winter's cold. I miss so much living behind these walls, clustered away from the world beyond. But sometimes I hear the rain across the roof and smell it upon the sidewalks clean. That's something that he wrote. Yeah, I read um, some of his... I might read you one here in a minute if we want to trade back and forth, if that's not a weird thing for two guys to do. Uh, my quick opinion, very derivative kind of a Robert Frost ripoff. Anyway, continue. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, is he a great poet? I don't know. At some point, they began calling him the uh, the poet laureate of the damned, or something to that effect. And, you know, I, I don't know how much of that was really true or not, because no one here on death row called him that. Uh, once he left North Seg and came to East Block, where, look, and I'm going to tell you how it is because I have, I really have no, uh, <laughs> have no filter. So the guys in North Seg are guys that normally can't make it here on death row in East Block. East Block is the most violent place for death row inmates. It is where the murders happen. It's, it's, it's pretty bad here. So Sonny got, got in some trouble in North Seg and came to East Block. He refused to come out of his cell and go to yard at all because he was afraid to come outside. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. Maybe he just didn't have the taste for that kind of violence anymore. Uh, maybe his mind changed. As you said, he got fat, overweight. Um, but he did not come out of his cell. And that says a lot about a man at least for convicts and he lived out the rest of his life basically in a four by nine cell refusing to come outside was he a verbose guy was he a mouthy guy obviously he likes to write uh when he was arrested it, it was kind of ironic because there were some some issues with the constitutionality with uh, with some Brady violations, but to to put it you know to to cut to the chase, he pretty much immediately started blabbering, and then kind of claimed that he wasn't given the the proper process. Uh, yeah, well, that's not really him. That's an attorney looking for a defense, a for reversible error in his conviction. So that's not really him doing that. But he was, you know, he changed after a while. Obviously, he's a killer. And we've seen that he will kill up a close with a knife in a setting where someone insulted him or he got an argument with him. So he is a killer. But he kind of lost a taste for it. He lost his, and I know it sounds kind of weird, he lost his taste for killing. What I meant is he lost his taste for 
the overall violence that happens in prison. And he spent most of his time writing, and that's not a bad thing, but it just changes that whole outlook of this contract killer. And as I said, when they had mandatory yard, we had to come outside because they were searching ourselves. And he came out, guys asked the most questions, specifically, Another guy, which I mentioned by the name of Steve, which is a made-up name, because he wanted to know these guys in Las Vegas that he knew because this guy was a contract killer, and Sonny couldn't answer him. And Steve's response was, guy's full of shit. That was it. Yeah, and a lot of his writing, um, I, I picture someone full of shit writing a lot of... I, His voice as a writer, to me seems like someone who's trying to convey a certain image, but I, I kind of see through it. It's, it's, that's how I feel when I read it. Yeah, and you could be positive right on point. All right, man. Um, I have 15 minutes left, so let's, um, I guess we'll have to finish this off in this particular phone call. Um, so, yeah, you were, uh, you were right on point what you said, and, um, you know, his appeals started going by really quickly. And um, towards the end of his life, he just, he refused to do a lot of things. Go outside, as you know, he got very obese. And um, his appeals ran out. And at that point, he was already living, he, he had returned to North Bank. And, you know, as his, his uh, time came close, um, some of the people that I know that are now here, who I interviewed about him regarding this episode we were doing, said that he um, he knew that his time was short. He knew that he would be executed. And he asked a couple guys, you think I'm going to get executed? And, you know, these guys here are pretty blunt. They told him, yeah, you're going to die. Yeah, yes. And, and he did. Uh, 230 demonstrators gathered outside the prison. These are anti-death uh, penalty people. He had two sons. <clears throat> Neither of them came or even talked to him. He had no friends. He talked to no one up leading up to the execution besides his lawyer or his, his team of lawyers. And he had no last words, which is, again, I think ironic for someone that spent so much time as a uh, the, the poet laureate of death row or whatever his name was. Um, and I guess you could kind of say his last words were thank you because his lawyer named Margot Racconi uh, was mouthing to him. They, they had eye contact while he was in this, this sealed chamber. And um, she was saying, I love you. And he said, thank you. So I don't know what's up with that relationship. I'm not going to insinuate anything because I don't know. I would say if someone says, I love you, the correct response is usually, I love you too, not thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a slap in the face, right? You tell a girl, hey, I love you. She says, thank you. That's kind of a kick in the nuts, right? I think so, but it kind of fits his his personality that I'm starting to piece together a little bit. Yeah, I actually know uh, Margot Racconi. She was, she's the former, I think she still may be a federal defender, a federal public defender in Los Angeles. And um, so yeah, it's kind of a, man, if, 
Yeah, you say I love you, and the response is thank you. It's like that's a kick to the teeth just before you get executed, right? Yeah, yeah. Don't try that with your girlfriend at home. Um. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so they um, they proceed to kill him, and um, something went wrong at the last minute, kind of just waited a few moments, and by twelve twenty five, twelve twenty four, he was pretty much pronounced dead. Um, he did have a last meal, though. Hey, you can't blame him for this one because he did have a last meal. He didn't have no last words, but he definitely wanted to eat. And what he ate were was two grilled cheese sandwiches with radishes. Wow. One pint of cottage cheese, hominin or a corn mixture, which I don't know what the hell that is, a slice of peach pie, one pint of chocolate chip ice cream, and he was executed January the 29th, 2002, by lethal injection. It's a major fail, in my opinion, the last meal. Um, the radishes, I couldn't, I read different accounts if they were in the grilled cheese sandwich or separate. Either way, no one really likes radishes. Um, the yeah. hominy and corn mixed together is weird and uh cottage cheese and ice cream it sounds like it'd give you a stomach ache um was this uh so at a certain point the last meals gained a lot of media attention because people were kind of abusing it and being excessive so at some point i think they switched to you know you can't order a a specialty meal from a, a domino's pizza or something it has to be from the prison cafeteria so i'm wondering if if this was, uh, if the grilled cheese sandwiches were kind of the best thing he could get his hands on. Yeah, and they have a $50 limit as well. But this isn't the end of Sonny's story, as many of you might think. You see, Sonny had a secret while he was on death row. And although he told everybody he was a contract killer, he never did a lot of details about it. But... In 2015, the Utah police or law enforcement from Utah said they now had enough evidence to prove that Sonny was actually the killer of a third, or he was the, the culprit of a 35-year-old murder of a guy by the name of Timothy James Glasher, who at the time was 28 years old. And how they found out it was him. And remember, Matt, I, I mentioned that 45, or that 44 or 45 they used. I'm sorry, 44, uh, 45 caliber they used. Well, they ran ballistic rep uh, analysis. And Timothy James Glacier was shot to death in, um, in Utah in Mill Creek Canyon and the ballistics matched the gun that Sonny used to murder the 81 year old retired piano teacher. And uh, he was uh, found to have done it in Sonny with a other guy named Ace Fairbanks. Ace Fairbanks actually passed away in 1986 and since both guys by this time were both dead 
the murderer kind of just like said, okay, we know who did it. But he was, in fact, the murderer of that. And there was no hitman or contract killing like everybody thought. It was a simple drug deal gone bad. And it wasn't even a drug deal. This guy, Timothy James Glacier, was taken up into Mill Creek Canyon because he had like a pound of weed and they wanted it. They were wanting to rob this guy. That's why they killed him. It was just to rob him. He was shot twice in the head and um, in the torso as well. And um, that was it. So Sonny Anderson was not a contract killer. He was a killer of opportunity. This was an opportunity to present himself. He and this guy named Ace Fairbanks thought this guy's an easy guy to take his drugs. And that's exactly what they did. Yeah, it's pretty sad because the Glacian guy, you know, it's the classic thing where you're going to sell someone some drugs, they're going to give you some money, and some of the people in this business think, well, we can simply kill him, keep the drugs and the money, that's a two-for-one. But, you know, this guy was not any kind of career criminal. You know, he just was kind of dabbling in this, and from all accounts, he was just a really great really great guy that everyone still misses and so it's it's just really sad yeah the, the, the guy didn't deserve to die because he had some weed that these guys wanted I, I understand what these guys are doing and what was the, the motive behind it it was simply just robbing this guy and you know you look at some circumstances you say well you know you're a drug dealer you're dealing with drugs and you deserve what you got I disagree it, it was pot, and we are now in an era where pot is legal. wasn't that big of a deal back then, at least not in, at least not in my eyes. And the scientific community and medical community agree with that that marijuana is not that big of a deal. No matter what, this guy did not deserve to lose his life because these guys wanted to take his drugs. And it is a sad situation, but that was the secret that. Sonny Anderson had, and so to be clear, he was guilty of three murders, the one in prison of Robert Bunnell, the one of Elizabeth Lehman, the 81-year-old retired town teacher, and of James Glacier. That's the extent of his crimes. In some places, they called him a serial killer. He was not. He was also not a contract killer. That is the story on one Stephen Sonny Wayne's Anderson, a.k.a. Felix Smith. Yes. And, you know, it's hard to separate morality from from intellect, but for someone who claims to be and purports to be this existentialist writer who studies the human condition and all, I, I would say maybe you should have realized not cool to kill people with loved ones. Um, and, and there was, I don't know if we mentioned this, there was a, a big movement or a movement of some sort to get him released from prison because of his, what some people felt was his writing talent. And I'm reminded of the case of Jack Unterberger. Do you know that name? I do not. This was a Austrian guy who went to prison for murdering people, women, strangling them. And he went to prison. This was in the 60s. 
70s and he started writing books and it was lobbied by the sort of intelligentsia the academic community this guy's got so much to offer why are we locking him up he should be out on the outside writing books they released him he immediately uh <laughs> returned to being a serial killer while making tv appearances and having people critics fawn over his literature and was able to kill I, I think nine more people after that so that's a, that's a cautionary tale well lesson learned right yeah yeah but I, I think it's weird to I, I understand releasing lobbying to release someone based on their character the circumstances of their crime I, I don't know if we should be basing it on artistic flair you know what I mean yeah, no, I, I definitely understand. Um, the the merits of someone being released should be on rehabilitative um, rehabilitation. Um, his character, of course, needs while he was in prison what he did to better himself, and um, just you know, age. I think age is a big thing. This guy was obviously well over the age of twenty six when he committed these crimes, and actually twenty six when he murdered um, the eighty one year old retired piano teacher. So um, I'd say that he was pretty much uh, of sound mind and knew what he was doing and um, yeah it's hard for me to call it because I'm in a circumstance and uh, but as I said age to me is a big thing maturity you know kids that do something at 17 18 19 years old it's different when a man is 26 28 30 years old he does something huge difference yeah well as you said we're gonna close this one out we'll return with uh, the next person in line who was executed and uh if you don't mind I'll, I'll close with i think one of if not his last poems which is light a candle for my memory in a quiet chapel by the sea as day drifts into dusky night cup it in your hands and hold me tight i'm not going to do any of that <laughs> you're so right well, this is the end of this episode. This is William Noguera. And I'm Matt Ralston, and this has been Death Row Diaries. All right. Follow us on Instagram at Death Row Diaries and Facebook. Death Row Diaries, and we've announced our new Patreon channel, patreon.com slash Diaries, where you can go to support the show. And also, shout out to Arlo Sanders for providing the music here. Sorry, I forgot to do that the first several episodes. I apologize. We'll see you next time.